The contrast between life and death is stark in this refugee camp in South Sudan. But at the same time as one woman has given birth in a tent, five metres away, another mother has lost her five-month-old child. The whole community is just surrounded the body of the child. They've just laid, laid the baby out on the ground, swaddled in white cloth, and people are just howling and screaming. The mother is, is howling, but so are the family and, and the rest of the community. It's causing some tensions also, so we're going to have to make a swift exit. We don't, we don't want to make this any more painful than it already is. Today, I think, really highlighted that very stark contrast between life and death in these camps and the very real human cost of a crisis like this. You know, there was a child being born and a child dying within a few feet of one another, both there because of this conflict. And I think it also highlights the vast, vast humanitarian need here in a conflict which is largely being forgotten. You know, it was in the news for two weeks, the Western nationals were pulled out, and people stopped paying attention. Welcome to the I Podcast. I'm Molly Blackall, and this week I'm speaking to you from the Sudanese border, where the recent war has dramatically worsened a vast humanitarian crisis in the world's newest nation. What I've seen here has shocked me to my core. We'll meet the people facing life under the harshest of circumstances, unravel what's going on here, and explain why a UK government decision may have made things even worse. The South Sudanese flag is is waving. It's just wedged into a couple of tyres in the middle of this road. And the border is marked by sticks, sticks and black tyres. And every single minute, I'm watching people come across this border and into this camp to be registered. I'm looking at maybe 50, 100 right now. People with things carried on their heads, bags of food. But most people really don't have anything at all. A lot of the children are barefoot or in shoes that don't fit. People are exhausted. They're malnourished. They don't have enough water. They're desperate. They're really desperate. One of the first people they will meet is Majok Mayik. He works for the Humanitarian and Development Consortium, which is providing those arriving with some basic essentials. But sometimes it's not enough. What kind of condition are people arriving in? I mean, people have very little. Yeah, of course, there's nothing in their hands. So when they come from there, they have no money, they have no food, nothing to eat even where to sleep. Sometimes this place is congested. If a lot of people come here, this place is not enough for them. So it is our duty now to, to write, like try to transport them to the TC where they can get uh, something to eat and they can be supported by the agencies. So some of them have no bags at all? Nothing at all. You could find even somebody working with only bed sheet. A bed sheet? Uh, yeah, only uh, with nothing in his hand, no bag, nothing, nothing at all. Okay. Yeah. And many of them have walked a long time, right? You could even find people like uh, telling us that, you know, we they, from Khartoum to the camp, this refugee camp where they, there's a place called Halaga, mm-hmm. Halagaya. And from there they settled for a while so that they could get something to take them to, to Reng and to their final destinations. So far we have received uh, 
death cases of children. Children have died here? Yeah, have died here. Like How four, many? Three of them plus the, an old man also passed on. Three children and an old man died yeah, here? Yeah, died here. Do you know what they died of? They died of course of sickness, okay. but uh, the case of an old, that old man was, uh, he, he did not eat uh, anything for some, for some days. Of course he came from Khartoum and tried to settle in the, in, in the camp and uh, having arrived here, in the morning, before doctors of IOM could come, he just passed on. Okay. Mm. So what happened to the families who lost their children? Did they go on to the camp or did they stay here? What happens to them? Mostly the, the, those cases are all from the from Halagaya camp. They are not those who are coming from Khartoum to, to Reng. Mm -hmm. They are always coming from the, the camp to be uh, treated here and, and uh, they end up dying. Yeah. It's a terrible situation. Sure. Have you have you seen things this bad before, or is this the worst that it's been here? Of course, this is this 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 was this worst, and uh, I feel actually they need to be supported. If yeah, they need to be supported and uh, need to be cared for. What would you like to see the international community do to help the people in South Sudan here? Immediate intervention, because the situation is worse, and uh, you could just see. You don't need to be told, you, you have seen how people are suffering and uh, walking from Khartoum up to this place, they have a lot, they, they get a lot of challenges on the way. So if the international community could uh, do something about this, super. Inside the border point, just next to it, there's something of a camp before people are transported on those buses down to the sort of more residential camp. There's a tent here, a huge tent made by the UN and it's got women and children just sat on the floor, packed in. They wouldn't have enough space to lie down. They're just sitting on the floor. There's maybe a hundred people in there and the babies are screaming, people are hungry, people are extremely tired. There's a water point here but it's just on a pile of mud. There's six taps that people are, are able to, I think, drink out of. Some people are, are washing when they get in but that really is all that is meeting them here. To understand what's happening at the border, let me take you back to April 15th this year, when a fragile political arrangement shattered into conflict. Sudan had been run by a council of generals since a coup in October 2021, which was just one month before the country was due to transition to a civilian government. The council was led by two generals, the head of the army, General Abdel Fattah al-Bahan, and the head of a powerful paramilitary group called the Rapid Support Forces, General Mohammed Hamdan Dagallo, or, as he's known, Hemeti. They had worked together during the coup, but of late, tensions between them had been growing. On the 15th of April, this delicate pact collapsed. Fighting between the RSF and the Sudanese army broke out at a military base in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, spilling out into city centres and residential streets. At least 700 people have been killed, but the true figure is expected to be far, far higher. Hospitals have been looted or destroyed, and civilians are stuck, starving in their homes, unable to leave due to the violence outside of their windows. Here's what a British Sudanese student, Samar Al-Tayeb, who was studying Khartoum, said on the 25th of April. Imagine, like, the movie Purge. It's just like that. Like, the prisoners got released from the prison yesterday. So there's, like, murderers and people who've committed manslaughter and, like, thieves everywhere. 
And um, as I said, I'm on a group chat with a bunch of other people that are trying to leave. And some people have mentioned that they've been looted and they took their stuff and their money and they were just left in the middle of nowhere. And that's, I don't want that to happen to me. It's really bad. Like, and people are getting shot at. Like my friend, she just tried to evacuate. She got shot at, like, it's, wow. For those like Samar in Sudan with an international passport, help, however complex, was at least at hand. James Cleverly. His Majesty's Secretary of State for Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Affairs, sir. It would be remiss of me not to begin with the current crisis in Sudan. As you would expect, I've been in COBRA meetings and other meetings on our response to this situation today. I can inform you that a Royal Air Force flight has now left Sudan, carrying British nationals to safety this evening, and more will follow. From the onset of this crisis, we've been planning how to get our people out. And now that our and international calls for a ceasefire in Khartoum have been heeded, we are putting those plans into effect, giving priority to those in greatest need, family groups, the sick and the elderly. I'm encouraged that both factions have called a 72-hour ceasefire Though, of course, we cannot be sure for how long it will hold. And any evacuation from a battle-scarred city is inherently dangerous. Britain is working hand-in-glove with our partners across the world. And after this operation, we will do everything possible alongside our friends in the region to secure a lasting settlement for this tragic conflict. International governments scrambled to evacuate their citizens, with 2,450 UK nationals evacuated by the 4th of May. But as intermittent ceasefires broke down and the fighting intensified, nearly 500,000 people fled the country alone. More than 100,000 of them entered South Sudan, which became independent from Sudan in 2011. The vast majority of these are actually South Sudanese nationals who had left their home country due to its own conflict and instability and moved to Sudan, only to find war there too. Many walked for hours or even days in the baking heat to reach the border. Others sold their possessions to pay for travel, some having left loved ones behind in the terror. They were seeking somewhere safe. Instead, they have entered a nightmare with no way out. One Sudanese man who made this journey down to the border is Hassan. We've changed his name in the interest of security. He said he was a politician in Sudan who fled across the border when the war started out of fear for his life. But not everyone in his family made it with him. My house is very close to the place where the, the war broke out. It's not, not, not yani, about two kilometres. That is the place where the, the war broke out. So uh, uh, we stayed about months and something. The place was occupied by the uh, rapid support forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it's called uh, Sport City, which is very close to my house. So uh, what was happening that the military aircrafts bombed the area, and then the you know, the militias 
respond. We spent about one month plus by that situation. And at the end, the situation is began to deteriorating day after day. And then we decided to, to leave Khartoum. My, my family, my uh, wife and my daughter left a week before me. And also I have a son left behind. And I couldn't uh, uh, reach the place to bring him with me. Uh, he's living with my uh, uncle. So because of the secret situation and the restriction of movements, I couldn't get to that place to bring him. So I left him behind with my, my uncle. It's uh, very difficult. He thought he had reached safety. He hadn't. South Sudan has long-running issues of its own. A civil war gripped much of the new country between 2013 and 2020, and the effects are still being felt. Uh, here, the primary concern of all the refugees is the security situation. We fled from uh, an armed conflict, and when we came here, we found uh, a lot of you know people are armed here. They are neither military, no police, no security. Yeah. So uh, that is one of the, our primary concerns. We experience a lot of incidents of uh, yeah, robbery yeah. Yeah, at, at night. Have you had things stolen? No, no, no. I, I myself, uh, I didn't uh, lose anything, but a number of uh, refugees lost their properties, yeah. bags, clothes, their documents, money, uh, and it happens frequently. Every day we, we experience an incident at, at, at night. And there is no uh, security. Security isn't their only concern. The hundreds I see are crossing into South Sudan as the rainy season begins, which brings challenges of its own. They have few choices other than heading to the camps which have sprung up just south of the border. But this is just the start of another ordeal. We'll show you what faces them there after this short break. South Sudan rarely makes the news in the UK, and few journalists have reported on what's happening inside these new camps. To support this important work, and to keep up to date with the latest news from around the world, consider a subscription. We've got a special offer on, which means you can try I for just £1 for a whole month this summer. Head over to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast for more information. I, for Open Minds, subscribe today. As the scorching South Sudanese sun beats down, we're making a journey to one of the first camps these new arrivals are directed to. We're on our way to meet some of those trapped in this hidden humanitarian crisis. Just a note, for security reasons, we won't be using their real names. I'm in Renk, which is a town only about an hour's drive from the border with Sudan. And because of that proximity, thousands of people have fled into South Sudan via Renk since the conflict began. They think about 6,000 people have crossed that border since the start of the war, but that figure changes every day and it's not entirely clear. The conditions here are shocking. 
people are sleeping in shelters made of sticks with bits of fabric over the top, sometimes tarpaulin. The need here is enormous. I can't see the end of these tents. There's these white UNHCR, the UN's Humanitarian Refugee Agency, sprawling for as far as the eye can see. Inside one of these makeshift shelters sits Nadia, a mother of five in her 40s. Nadia was a secondary school teacher from Khartoum, she tells me. With a good job, a nice house and money in the bank, she says she never thought she'd end up in a place like this. Now, living in the squalor of the camp in rank, she and her child have contracted malaria. I was living a normal life, but when the war started in Sudan, my life turned upside down. We were living in the best villa in Fayan. We had a nice house, two floors, and we had cars, but when the war broke out, there was a building next to us and a bomb fell on them. It was on a Monday, on the 17th of April, second day of the war, and when the fighting starts, people don't sit at home. We go out on the streets in case a building falls on them, or things like that. Everyone in my building went outside, and we were standing on the streets to watch. We expected something would happen. Then the building next to us was hit. We went outside and saw it collapse. It was only 3pm in the afternoon. There were people that died and we knew them really well. And we knew if we didn't run outside immediately, then maybe something bad would happen to us. And by the mercy of God, we thank God, we ran fast from the building. Nadia is visibly shocked and upset. Her old life is unrecognisable to her now. Believe me, if I wasn't a believer in Allah, I would have gone into shock. I would have gone crazy. I've put all my money in the bank. I've got dollars and I've got money, but I can't withdraw it because of the war. I never thought that one day I would be sleeping in a place like this. I never thought that my children would go to sleep hungry and there would be days when there is no food or little to eat. For many, rank is just an initial stop off. The UN offers transport to another camp around seven hours drive further into South Sudan. It's a bone-crunching drive along the dusty road, through a disputed area of land which our security team say we cannot drive through at night. Tanks are permanently stationed there, facing off across the bushland. It's a reminder of the issues South Sudan was already facing before the recent conflict north of the border. There's been intermittent conflict here since its independence, and according to Save the Children, one in five children were already malnourished. But despite this, aid programmes to South Sudan are severely underfunded, and that comes at a cost for the people staying in these camps. It was something I was aware of before my visit, but nothing prepared me for what was coming next. Are they, are they dangerous? As we walk through the mud of the Maban camp, a man approaches us carrying a white bucket. He tips it onto the floor. Twenty or so dead snakes spill out, tangled and bloody. These have all been caught from tents around the camp in one single day. It was the same the day before, he tells us, and the same the day before that. Next to him, children run around barefoot. Very few people have any shoes here, and they're staying in tents which give them no protection from these venomous fangs. One of the camp's 160,000 residents is Salam. She sits on a blue plastic chair as we talk in a half-empty UNHCR storage tent. 
She's 25 years old and from Eritrea, having rebuilt her life in Sudan. This place here, this place is exactly like where I was in Eritrea, the militarised areas. When I came here, I was told that you will have a safe place to stay. You'll have a safe place to eat and drink. You'll have a safe place for hospitals. And when I came here, I saw that this was untrue. As you can see, we're constantly surrounded by scorpions and the insects are crawling around. As you can see, there's water everywhere. Imagine what will happen when you walk over that, and this is meant to be a safe ground. I was one of the people that was robbed. My whole bag that had my paintings that I could sell, my acrylic colours, my hairdressing equipment. I used to be a hairdresser. All of it, my clothes, $1,500 worth of things with all of my clothes, all of it gone. There are many people that lost all of their things like me here. We wouldn't wish how we are living on anyone. We wouldn't wish it at all. We also have people here who are sick, pregnant women, older people, and all of our lives are really hard to the point you hate your life. We had a stressful journey coming to this camp so we can rest a little bit, and because we trust the UN, we came here. But the place they described it would be, it's totally different. Salam shows us the toilet. For how many people? More than 500. It's a filthy hole in the ground used by hundreds of people. And the stench is so potent that she has to cover her nose and mouth as she opens the door. The showers are the same, a hole in the ground with a bucket of water next to a pile of rotting rubbish. The sanitation issues here mean disease is spreading fast. But if you do get sick, medical treatment is scarce. In terms of hospitals, we were told that they would be some, but they don't have any here. I began dental treatment because I needed to have fillings. Here, they are telling me to either extract my tooth or take painkillers. I've had my teeth cleaned previously and had a dental filling, but the filling was only temporary to kill the germs and I was meant to have another filling in the hospital that I was going to. But the war started and I couldn't. And there's a pregnant woman here, her blood type is zero negative. This woman doesn't have much blood and they told her to go to Fallujah. And when she went there, they told her they can't do anything for her. They don't even have blood transfusions here. And there are people that need follow-up appointments from their previous healthcare treatments, but there's none available. We are suffering a lot. My uncle is in Canada and he was willing to be my sponsor. I was about to complete my application. I started the visa and did my medical, but then the war started. We're living in a situation like this, so I can't go. I can't get out of this place when it's so remote and you have nothing. Even if we did get out, where do we go? I have hope, though, that one day I will go to Canada. Salam's desire to migrate to Canada is easy to understand. She shows us the men's shelter, where people are preparing their food. A purple-grey mixture bubbles in a metal pot. Everybody is hungry here, after already skimp UN rations were cut in half. So why are conditions here so bad? The answer lies, in part, due to a decision taken by the UK government in 2020 in the wake of the pandemic. Here's the then-Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, speaking at the time. That means temporarily 
we won't meet our 0.7% commitment on international aid, but we will still spend £10 billion supporting the poorest countries across the world next year, making us one of the most generous countries out of, out of any other country. And that comes on top of a record settlement for our armed forces. And they also play a vital role in humanitarian missions all around the world. So we should hold our heads up high and be very proud of the role that Britain is playing to help the world's poorest. James Denslow is the head of conflict at Save the Children, who have a presence in the Maban camp and the rent camp. And he told me how this decision has had a real impact on the ground. So in 2020, the UK government made the decision to reduce the percentage it spends of its GDP on uh, international aid and development from 0.7% to 0.5%. That has resulted in huge real-term cuts for humanitarian programmes uh, across the world. In South Sudan, what that means is that uh, a 69% reduction in the overall aid money that uh, the UK has given to South Sudan between 2019 and 2022, uh, and figures that are, are that horrifying are replicated in, in different countries from the DRC to Lebanon to Afghanistan. Humanitarian aid is the equivalent of being the sort of firefighters, if you will, for the disasters we're seeing around the world today. And the challenge is that we have got more and more of these disasters that are lasting for a longer and longer time. So the cost of uh, the responses grow with that equivalency. And I guess the challenge we've got at the moment is that we are seeing this spike in, in crises. And at the same time, we're seeing a downward limb, which is the UK aid response to them. And nowhere is that better displayed than in, in South Sudan, where you have a protracted historical conflict that has resulted in a, a huge number of people in the country becoming dependent on aid. And I think that's, again, worth stressing. You know, the majority of the population in South Sudan is dependent on aid. And then on top of that, you have a, a fairly new crisis in Sudan that has resulted in even more people displaced across borders into into South Sudan. And then all that combines to, to cause a you know, greater need across all the sort of types of the humanitarian response, whether that's providing clean water, providing enough food, providing child protection and education, the more complex and less visible parts of an aid response. And if you don't have the money to do it, you simply can't. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And there's no better display of that, perhaps, than when you see sort of organisations like the World Food Programme and others having to sort of cut the size of, of their rations. So I think the, the real struggle in, in South Sudan in, in lieu of the UK government's decisions is that growing gap between need and, and resources to meet that need. Again, the point about South Sudan, which is particularly interesting, is that notion of it being a sort of forgotten conflict. And this is, again, another challenge on, on top of the existing ones, is that if we looked, we did some research on this last year, that between January and September of last year, uh, Ukraine got five times as much media coverage than all of the 10 worst countries to be a child in conflict combined. Now, of course, that doesn't mean, you know, I'm sure the people in Ukraine didn't want to have that coverage in terms of the, the horrors that they've been experiencing. But it does show that uh, we have a hierarchy, if we of, of knowledge as to what's going on uh, in various humanitarian responses and unfortunately and you've seen it yourself when you travel to the far-flung parts of countries like South Sudan that are very very difficult to get to and often the, the suffering that happens there it ha suffers in, you know, it happens in silence. I asked the UK government about this. They told me that Britain remains one of the largest aid donors around the world having spent a total of 12.8 billion last year globally and that the government would restore its previous aid commitment of 0.7% of GDP, quote, as soon as the fiscal situation allows. Mr Sunak said back in 2021 that this would happen by next year, but with the economic situation in the UK looking fragile, 
Doubts remain about when the full funding will return. We're on the banks of the Nile here in Renk, and this is where many of the boats are travelling down to the South Sudanese capital of Juba. So people are making it as far as Renk, which is quite close to the Sudanese border, only about an hour's drive. And then they're coming here and trying to get on boats to sail the rest of the way down to the capital to find some new form of life there. As the sun sets on the banks of the Nile, men push these brightly coloured boats onto the water to set sail towards the capital of Juba. They hope this will be the start of something better in this forgotten crisis. You can read all of my articles from South Sudan on inews.co.uk and you can find the full video report on our YouTube channel. I've also posted a lot about this on social media and you can find that on Twitter at Molly Blackall and on Instagram at molly.blackall. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.